Hello and welcome to Diabet Tech. I'm Justin and on here I talk all things diabetes tech, news and management with industry leaders, educators and those living with diabetes. Today I'm eager to share with you the incredibly inspiring story of Kayla Haber. Kayla was born with a progressive genetic and rare disease known as cystic fibrosis and at the age of 13 she was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis related diabetes. Kayla has chronicled her journey on her blog Fight to Breathe and on social media platforms ever since she experienced the struggles of end-stage lung disease and multiple transplants. I spoke with her all about overcoming her surgeries and transplants over the years, tackling diabetes on top of all that, and how she's been living her best healthy life, traveling the country through van life with her partner. Before we get into that, I just came out with what I think is my coolest YouTube video ever. I toured the Insulate headquarters where Omnipod is made. I went on the factory floor. I went into their research and development. I have a YouTube video right now that shows all of that off. I saw a pump that never reached the market. I talk all about the insides of the pump and how it works and all the different parts. It was such an awesome experience and I definitely want you to see it. So that's on YouTube and in today's show notes. Keep in mind that anything you hear on today's show on any of my content on social media and YouTube channel is not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor and your physician before making changes to your healthcare. All right, let's get into the conversation. Kayla, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored that you allowed me to join and share my story. Of course. Yeah, you have a very unique story. And I, I feel like there are so many types of diabetes, reasons for why people get diabetes. And I'm very interested in learning about another one that I didn't even know existed until you reached out to me on Instagram. So this is going to be super interesting. So what we are talking about today or is diabetes related to cystic fibrosis. Now, I really don't know much about cystic fibrosis. Can you first tell us like what that is? Sure. Cystic fibrosis is a progressive genetic and rare disease that affects the lungs, pancreas, and other organs in the body. So for people like me who have cystic fibrosis, there's a mutation on the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductor regulator gene that affects the CFTR protein. So I know that's a lot of words, but it's basically DNA. There's a defect in the DNA that affects a protein and that protein becomes dysfunctional. Everybody has that protein and people with cystic fibrosis, it becomes dysfunctional. And when the protein doesn't work correctly, it's unable to move chloride, a component of salt to the cell's surface. And when there's no chloride to attract water to the cell's surface, the mucus that you and I have, mine becomes extra thick and sticky, and that affects the various organs in the body. How does that relate to diabetes? Why would someone get diabetes from this? That thick and sticky mucus exists in the pancreas, and it creates scarring around the pancreas. So over time, that scarring prevents the pancreas from making normal amounts of insulin. So like a type 1 diabetic, we become insulin deficient, meaning we make insulin, but we don't make enough insulin to maintain a healthy life and a good diet. But in addition, like type 2 diabetes, we become insulin resistant as well because there's times where our body doesn't necessarily react to insulin correctly. 
So that might be when we have infections or when we're put on certain antibiotics or steroids or anything like that, where we don't necessarily know how our body's going to react to those things. And that changes the way that we react to insulin. Interesting. You kind of dipped into my next question, um, which is like, how does cystic fibrosis or does it make the treatment of diabetes more difficult? Is it harder to manage uh, than like someone like myself would have to? First off, I don't really want to compare myself or people with CF to anybody else because I think, you know, even with type one, everybody's so unique, unique and individual. So I think we can't really say what one's harder than the other. However, I believe the most complex or complicated thing about cystic fibrosis related diabetes is that we can't necessarily change our diet or cut carbs. So people with CF need a high carb, high protein, high fat diet to maintain good health. And our nutritionists are also encouraging us to eat as much and as often as possible. So people with CF eat a lot of food and we're supposed to eat a lot of food to maintain good health. Um, but not only that, we also have digestive systems that may not work properly due to that thick and stick, sticky mucus. So we graze throughout the day rather than eating large meals because those larger meals are harder to digest. So grazing throughout the day doesn't really leave us this fasting period to have our glucose come back down. So we're constantly eating, which is constantly raising our glucose, which makes it harder to manage. At the same time, lots of people with cystic fibrosis, we survive off of antibiotics and steroids to treat lung infections. And that's the basic reason why we're able to be alive is with those antibiotics and steroids. So we don't know when our body, how our body is going to react, like I said before. So there's been times where I've been inpatient in the hospital with an infection and I'm put on a certain antibiotic and my insulin, my glucose just is through the roof. It's just registering high all the time. And that's when I have an endocrinology team inpatient come in. They take over the totality of my care. They put me on an insulin drip and I'm on that insulin drip for basically either the remainder of my treatment or until I can maintain a stable glucose and control it enough on my own. Um, otherwise, there's also times where it causes hypoglycemia. And I'm basically in this rat race to keep up with hypoglycemia episodes. So we really don't know what we're walking into with every admission. And that's what makes it so complicated. Yeah, that sounds very complicated. Um, let's kind of dive into your journey. So like, when did you notice, take us back, like, when did you notice that something was off? Like, has this been something you've been struggling with your whole life? Or is this something like later in life that you kind of came across? Well, so cystic fibrosis related diabetes can happen at any stage in your life. So somebody can have it when they're a child, somebody might not get it until they're an adult. It really depends on your disease progression. For myself, I didn't really know or understand what cystic fibrosis related diabetes was at the time when I was first diagnosed. So I was about 13 years old and I had the normal flu infection that I had every year. And I was given my regular regimen of antibiotics 
And I went home on oral antibiotics. I was taking them and I really wasn't responding the way that we thought I should. So I went back into clinic and the doctors prescribed me a steroid called prednisone, which helps with inflammation in the body. And that's when they educated my parents and myself about cystic fibrosis related diabetes. They told us the symptoms, they told us what to look out for, and they said, if those symptoms occur, we want you to come back and um, tell us about it. So I was about a week into this steroid and antibiotic treatment, and I realized that I was urinating very frequently. And I was also dropping weight, which could have been normal, but you know, was also another symptom. So we went back into clinic and I had my glucose tested there. And that's when I was diagnosed with diabetes. However, I wasn't automatically insulin dependent. I wasn't automatic. That didn't mean I was on automatically taking insulin. What it meant was that I did have this scarring starting to occur around my pancreas. And I needed insulin when I was sick or having a cystic fibrosis exacerbation. So my lungs were unhealthy. I needed antibiotics or steroid. So that's kind of how it began. I would just take insulin on and off when I was sick. And then over time, the scarring kept building up and I needed to take a dose of basal insulin in the morning. And that turned into taking it twice a day, which turned into me needing boluses for food. And that's when I became insulin dependent. So I've been insulin dependent now for about um, maybe like a decade, over a decade probably. Yeah. Um, so now tell us a little bit about like the other end of that journey, right? Like what, tell us a little bit about like the cystic fibrosis journey. When did you get, you got that diagnosis at 13 as well? Like, was that a similar time or? No, so I was diagnosed at birth with cystic fibrosis, and that was kind of just something that I got really lucky with in a way, because obviously we know the sooner we can get treatment, the better our outcomes can be. So I had a complication at birth called meconium ileus, and that really means that we all have meconium in our bodies, and it's basically like an infant's stool, our poop, that we have to pass when we're born. And my intestines were um, twisted and they were inflamed. So I was unable to pass that meconium. So I was, I had surgery at birth immediately the day after I was born. And the surgeon there, it was 1990, I was born in 1990. And the surgeon by luck had seen this happen in another child and said, your child has cystic fibrosis. And at that time, we pe most people didn't know what cystic fibrosis was, even physicians, because it was it's still a rare disease. And at that time, it was extremely rare. So it was an orphan disease. And my parents were kind of told, your child probably won't live into their teenage years, but we're going to do the best we can. And that's all we can do. And so um, I was sick the first year of my life. Um, and then my parents were able to find a doctor who could properly treat me. And I was healthy all the way through like my teenage years. I did sports, I did social activities. My parents really pushed me in sports, not as much in academics because they knew that in order to keep up with a healthy like lungs and healthy CF disease, I needed to work out and stimulate my body to have he good health. So when I reached um, 
basically puberty, that's when my disease started to progress. And I started to be in the hospital each year with an infection. And that just started to multiply and multiply and multiply. And by the time I was 22 years old, that's when I was told I needed a double lung transplant to survive. And that's basically what spiraled into the next 10 years of my life, you know, living in the hospital, fighting for a double lung transplant. And I have now had two double lung transplants, three open heart surgeries and many, many other things, but I'm healthy. So it's all worth it. That's incredible. You are like a true warrior. That's a lot to go through at such a young age. Like we're, we're the same. <laughs> We're about the same age. Um, and I can't imagine like I've had my own like obstacles, but like that's just that's a lot to go through. And just to see like how healthy you are and just like high energy and spirits you are like from when we spoke on Instagram to when we had like an initial Zoom call like that. Just, it's just amazing to see like where you are now. Um, and I'm sure a lot of that, a lot of the way you are today is because you went through a lot of this stuff. Tell us, so like my biggest fear is like go, since I was diagnosed with diabetes is like going into surgery and managing blood sugar levels. Can you kind of tell me about like what, what that's like? Is there someone's job that's dedicated to like treating you? Are you on like, I mean, I'm sure like once closed loop systems came out that helped a bit with that whole process, but like, tell me a little bit about that, whatever you're able to whatever you know. I can only speak from personal experience, but basically it really depends on how complex the surgery is going to be. So when I had my two double lung transplants, open heart surgeries, things that are going to be like really complex and you're going to have a, you know, 10 plus hour surgery, there's going to be a long recovery and you're going to be sedated and things where you're not going to be able to manage your care yourself. Um, you're going to be put on an insulin drip pre-op. So before you go into surgery, the endocrine team is going to come in. They're going to put you on an insulin drip for people don't, who don't know what that means. That basically means that you're going to get your insulin through an IV and it's all on its own. It's very protected and insulin. It takes, it's taken very seriously by the nurses. It is locked. They have a key to open it, to dose it because it is it is, you know, insulin can, is very hard to manage and it's very tricky. So you're put on the insulin drip and you have an endocrine team who's um, taking care of that the whole time you're in surgery, the whole time you're in recovery. And then as soon as you're able to manage those uh, glucose sugars or your glucose kind of starts to stabilize, you're taken off the drip. And then nurses can either help you by managing it or you immediately start managing it again on your own. So for a minor surgery, say I'm inpatient or outpatient, I prefer to manage things as much as I can on my own. And that's for like all my health. Like I like to have control over it. So I usually go into pre-op and I talk to the nurse who's going to be in the room with me and I tell them I'm a diabetic, I'm insulin dependent. This is what I did this morning. So usually the night before a uh, procedure, I'll take my full dose of basal insulin and then in the morning, I'll have that dose because I know I'm going to be NPO, which means I'm not going to be eating or drinking anything until I'm over. I'm done with the procedure. So I just half my dose of basal insulin and I give no boluses because I'm not eating or drinking. And I go into surgery and I usually open my phone. I unlock it and I show them my Dexcom app 
and I give it to them and I say, there, here's my Dexcom. You can see it the whole time I'm here. And they love that because they can see the trend and they're able to then to know um, if they need to give dextrose through the IV or they need to treat me in any way because they're seeing how, you know, my trend's moving. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so they're, they usually like that I'm so hands-on and they, you know, listen to that and they work with me to do that. And that's what I'll do for like a minor surgery. So yeah, that's kind of how it works. And it's very dependent on what's being done to me and how coherent I am. Um, and then right after the minor surgery, I'll just go back into taking my normal doses of boluses, my normal doses of basal and go back into life. Um, there's times where I always ask. So as a diabetic, I will always ask and say, I'm a insulin dependent diabetic. I'm very, um, you know, fickle with my diabetes. Can I have the first procedure of the day? And I'll tell them, you know, it manages my diabetes better if I can do that. So if I can get the first appointment at like 6 a.m., I'll give my normal basal at night and I won't do anything in the morning because I'm basically still sleeping usually at 6 a.m. So for me, my body's used to not having any insulin or food. Um, and so I'll just go into the procedure and I'll come out of it and then I'll just give my morning dose of basal and go on with my day as normal. And that works for me. And usually they will, you know, uh, like respect that and try to work with me to do it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I know like we, many people watching this and myself all like realize that different times of the day we react differently to insulin and we react differently to, differently to carbs. And that's something we adjust with our, you know, settings over time. And it's so cool that you've kind of figured that out and found like the ideal like procedure time um, that and that's cool that they work with you. Now, last time we spoke, you also mentioned that there was a moment in your life, I think related to diabetes, where you were kind of in denial of it. I had a similar experience. Can you kind of tell me? Let's unpack that. <laughs> tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I was 13 years old. I was very healthy. I was doing sports. My whole life revolved around social activities and sports. And um, I really wasn't exposed to all of the possible outcomes of cystic fibrosis at that age. You got to think back. I'm going to age myself here, but I didn't have an iPhone. I could just hop on the internet. I didn't have, you know, my own laptop. We had one family computer. We used it for schoolwork and that was just about it. We weren't Googling everything, you know, so I really wasn't exposed to what cystic fibrosis was and how, you know, how terminal it was. So when I was diagnosed with diabetes, it was this whole new diagnosis, a very complex one on top of that. And so I was kind of all sprung on me. You need to learn how to carb count. You need to learn how to test your glucose. You need to learn the symptoms, how to test ketones. You need to learn all of these things. At that time, I was just worried about learning my cheerleading routine. You know, I didn't really have the mind space for this sort of thing. And I also didn't have any of the technology that we have now. So I was kind of just testing my glucose on a manual monitor and I was injecting with vials. So I had to carry that around with me. I was not used to having my disease be visible because essentially I had this invisible disease. 
So I was very shy about doing that in front of friends. And it was hard for me emotionally, I think, to deal with. Um, and a lot of times I kind of ignored it because of that. And I didn't think it was as big of a deal as I know that it is now. And so I think sometimes I did have moments where I let it get out of hand and that really played into feeding infection because high glucose can feed that infection, making it worse. And so my lungs would then become infected. So over time I had to learn, you know, that I can't slack on anything because everything in the body works together to keep us healthy. Um, but it was, it was, it was, um, overwhelming for me for sure yeah i mean that's such a young age to kind of ex like you had your one thing you're like well this is my thing and then it's like nope you also have this thing and i was getting a little emotional <laughs> when you were talking just because like i kind of had like a similar experience in the sense that i had cancer when i was 21 and then when I got diagnosed with diabetes, I was just like, really? Like another thing? Like, I don't deserve this. Like I already had my one thing. Oh my God, goodness. I wasn't, <laughs> um, you know, like, and you're, and I was in, I was in complete denial. Like I was misdiagnosed as type two and I went eight to 10 months with that type two. No, I went six months with that, that type two diabetes diagnosis and wasn't eating well during that. Like, I was just like, F it. Like, I'm going to do whatever I want. Meanwhile, I started getting really sick. Luckily, put up some videos on TikTok, and they helped me get the type 1 diabetes diagnosis. But, like, there were a good three to five months where I was just like, I'm fine. I don't have – like, I have type 2 diabetes. I'm going to take these pills and eat whatever I want, which wasn't the case. And I'm glad that I finally advocated for, for myself – honestly, thanks to the, the people on TikTok who pushed me to, which, um, which in many ways is why I do today. But um, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. And but like, we truly are both stronger people because of these things that we've gone through. And we're also navigating life so well. Um, so, you know, I'm really proud of us. <laughs> um, me too. What, what would you tell your younger self now that you're in a healthier place that that girl at 13 years old i would probably try to tell myself to understand how you know powerful the human body is and how um able the human body is and if we respect that and we try to take care of our bodies we are able to push through so many things that we don't think we can and you know, by respecting our bodies, that means accepting ourselves for whatever disease we have or condition, illness, anything, abnormality, you know, and just saying, you know what, this is one thing about me, but it's not who I am. Who I am is, you know, whoever I choose to be. This is teaching me life lessons. This is teaching me responsibility. This is teaching me all of those things. And if I just deal with it day by day, episode by episode, you know, low by low, all of those things that feel at the moment, super, super overwhelming. We can get through it. We can push on and be proud of ourselves. Like you said, like be proud of ourselves. Wear that Dexcom with pride, wear the Omnipod with pride, wear whatever you wearable you want to wear. And just who cares if people ask what it is, you just simply explain it. And if they have some sort of reaction to it, that's negative that really is on them. It doesn't impact you. It doesn't have to impact you. 
if you kind of just are confident with yourself, accept yourself, you can keep going and just push through, you know, any, anything that you're dealing with really. Yeah. And I think that in many ways, this is like the power, the good side of social media that both you and I have unlocked is this, this community that exists out there. And why do they exist? They exist because they inspire, they show pride and they help others feel more proud and wear their technology or, you know, other communities do their thing and feel heard and understood. And this is something I didn't find until I was in the diabetes community. Um, and it's just been so powerful. And everything you said is just in line with like, why I do what I do today. Because there are so many people who haven't yet unlocked that part of themselves that's, you are the most important person in your life. And you are like, you should be proud of that person. That's your best friend. You should have their back. And anyone else who tries to like come in the way of that aren't worth it. We have this saying like in my family, my husband and I always say like, you're the person who cares about your disease the most. You know, these people, your caregivers, your care team, all of those people are there to help you, empower you, give you the tools needed to take care of yourself. But at the end of the day, you know, you're the person that's going to get things done that needs to be like responsible and advocate for yourself to have things, um, to have the new tech that's out there. You know, if you read the technology, if you keep up with, or if you read the news, the media, you keep up with all those things, you're better able to advocate for yourself. So that's something that's super important is always keeping up with up-to-date things, what's new, and then reaching out to your insurance companies, reaching out to your care teams, your medical teams, and just saying, hey, I saw this is out there. Is it good for me? And then that really opens the door to conversations because you know, you're one person, but to your medical team, they have like 300 patients. So you just have to be as proactive as possible with your care. Yeah, and speaking of being an advocate for yourself, but tell me about the advocacy work that you're doing on social media. So I began Fight to Breathe in 2012 when I was told that I needed a double lung transplant. And that was because when I was told that I needed a transplant, I was also told that I would need to fundraise in order to um, support myself and two full-time caregivers for three months after the procedure. I'd need to stay local next to the hospital and nobody would be able to work, you know, those two caregivers because they'd need to be hands-on full-time. And so for me, that wasn't, I wasn't in a situation to be able to financially do that. So um, I went to, um, I created a website and on that website, I had like a, not a GoFundMe, but sort of like a GoFundMe so that people could donate to my cause. And I went to social media as a way that I could kind of just share my story and I could keep my friends and family updated because I, you know, it was a lot to update every single person that calls all the time on everything that's happening because in life, things are happening so quickly when you're that ill. So that was kind of like my update page. And I just said, like, if you want to donate, you can on this website. Um, and so over time, I started to have people reaching out to me with the same disease, parents, people themselves, parents that needed help with teenagers that weren't taking their medications or things like that. And I saw this, you know, 
opportunity of really just being as transparent as I could about what I was going through, telling everybody that it was a personal story. I was unique to myself. This doesn't mean you're going to go through this, but you know, this is what I'm dealing with. This is how I'm handling it. And just kind of sharing that story. And I think that it's personally given me a community that has empowered me so much. There's been times where I felt so low. I was once in a medical coma. And when I woke up from that coma, I was unable to talk, walk, do anything for weeks. And my parents, um, my mom and my brother actually sat next to me and were reading me comments of people encouraging me to keep fighting and telling me, you know, they were fighting with me and they were by my side. And the community online has just really, really given me so many like moments of like, okay, like I can do it. I can do it. Like motivation, you know, and hopefully we're giving that to each other. I know you do that for me so much. I know you're new to, you know, this diabetes world and online, but you've really broken into it and you are so proud of who you are and you are so confident about everything. And you just have like such a great mentality about everything that you're taking on because it's overwhelming to have a disease. And I think seeing you, I mean, I've had it for 20 years and still I look at you and I'm like, wow, he's amazing. So it's just, I love the online community for that. Yeah. It's, it's incredible just being able to connect with other people who are going through the same thing. And then also because of what I do, like, and what keeps me going is the messages I receive from people that are like, keep going, you're helping me so much. And not even realizing like, how helpful a video can be when I make it like, I'm like, I hope you know, I hope this does something like, and just like, you it, being able to touch, I mean, being able to touch one person or help one person is really my goal, right? Like at a minimum, if I'm inspiring one person, like that's a success. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people don't have the tools to kind of understand that they need to go online and learn these things for themselves. So what you do, I think is amazing because you have this niche of being able to explain technology in a way that the normal person like myself can understand. And I think that's what's so great is like, most people are gonna be on social media, but not everybody's gonna take the time to like read into every detail of a disease. So what you're doing is awesome for that. Just spending the time to like figure out your diabetes can can be a time suck. And just being able to put hashtag Omnipod in Instagram or TikTok and being able to find like people specifically who are using these products and not someone who's using like using marketing terms like that's that's the power of it. And um, I'm glad that I can make content for people to watch for free. Because like, wouldn't it be great if we, like, and I'm still able to make a living for myself, you've had diabetes for a long time and it's evolved, how does technology today help you or has it helped you or saved you in any way? When I was first diagnosed and for the first, you know, 10 years maybe, maybe, yeah, about 10 years, I was just using like manual testers and I was just testing morning and bedtime before meals, two to three hours after meals. And so I was not seeing a trend at all. And at that time, I, my highest A1C was 13. So that's a big number. 
And um, I, because of that 13 number, I was actually, um, it was a red flag for getting a double lung transplant. So when I was first told I needed a double lung transplant, they actually said, but you're not a candidate for these reasons. And one of the major reasons was because my A1C was so high and they knew that with a high A1C, it's going to feed into that infection. I'm not going to recover well. And also, you know, I'm not going to have a good survival. So I needed to get the A1C down. And luckily for me at that time, technology was just coming out. So I was able to get the Dexcom and through the Dexcom, I was able to see the trend every single day. And it became less of a guessing game and more of a, I know how to take care of my diabetes, a confidence in giving myself an injection because I know that it's going to do the appropriate thing rather than, okay, well, today we're going to try this and tomorrow we'll try that and that sort of thing. Um, so I think my like technology has greatly enhanced my health overall as in the aspect of being able to be alive today, literally, because I did, I was able to get my A1C under six and get a double lung transplant and keep it, you know, either, of course, everyone's going to have times where you're spiking and it's out of control, but you know, then we deal with it. We get a new regimen and we get it back down and I was able to get it back down to the point where I am now. How technology helps me today is um, I started to be outdoors more the last couple years. And being outdoors more, I realized, yes, I have a Dexcom, but I'm still giving injections by a pin. I don't mind giving injections. It doesn't bother me. However, if I give an injection, I can't really take that injection back. I can't microdose it to the amount that I might need to. Um, and that's when I got a pump because... I was, you know, 10 miles off the road and your insulin goes low or your insulin's not cooperating. You just want something that's not like I gave 10 units of basil this morning and now I'm dropping for the rest of the day. You want to be able to pause your basil, not give any more and kind of change your strategy around um, diabetes. So what's cool is like my Omnipod, I have an activity setting and I have like an everyday setting. So, you know, every day is my normal settings and my activity, I, I, de I decrease the basal a lot and I decrease even the insulin ratios and stuff that I'm giving for my food and carb counts. And then I also have like a city one because when you're in the city, you're always eating like greasy food and junk food more because you're going out, you're seeing friends. So those settings are really, really impactful to me having a, a better maintained glucose. You recently had to use glucagon for the first time. Yes. That's scary. Like, I, I always, like, think about, like, what if, but, like, can you kind of give us some insight on, like, what that experience was like? So, been a diabetic for 20 years, officially this year. Never used my glucagon. Um, I have the glucagon, like, vial. And over the last, like, year or two, I can't really remember, I now have the nasal powder, glucagon so that enables if somebody is passed out you can still kind of inject it into their nose and they can still breathe it in and stuff um but so what happened was we went on a hike and this hike was a very strenuous hike um for me it was like five miles each way it was gaining 2400 elevation it was in the mountains passing snow river crossings all those things 
And I've kind of been like working up to these sort of things this um, last two years. And so this was a big one for me. And usually when I go out on a hike, like I said, I change my setting in my Omnipod to an activity mode. I change it like an hour before I go and then I'll keep it on for an hour after. And I'll also do like breakfast without taking any insulin. Um, and so every hour I'm hiking, I take 15 grams of carbs. I love to take the little gel energies that people take for activity because it gives you caffeine boosts too. So it kind of gives you some energy and you don't feel full when you're working out. So I do that one every hour. And um, unfortunately, I gave insulin with my breakfast. So I started out kind of on the wrong foot because on a normal day, that would have been fine. But um, because I gave insulin with breakfast and then I started working out, my body was dropping my glucose, which meant that, you know, that insulin was dropping me really fast. And um, I was out on the trail and we started to see it drop. So I took a, a gel and that gel has like 22 carbs in it. And I kept going. And when I said it was dropping, it was like 90 down. So I took it because I dropped very fast. I'm just a person that I know I dropped very fast. And so um, I kept walking because I wasn't very symptomatic. And then we saw like a 65 arrow down. And so then it's like, okay, let's stop and intake some more um, carbs and kind of rest for 15 minutes before we keep walking. And I was getting symptomatic. However, we're in like 8,000 feet elevation from the start gaining. So I was thinking mostly that because of the elevation, I was just kind of dizzy because the elevation gain, you're working out, you know, you kind of get out of breath and you're kind of a little bit dizzy. I was also a little bit nauseous, things like that. And I do have those things with elevation sickness. So I was kind of like, thought it was just that, which was a mistake. But um, as we kept going, this was like hours long, trying to get my glucose up. We were very far from the car at this point, probably like four miles from the car, which for me is going to be like, you know, a few hours to get back. And so um, we were, I took six gels that all have 20 to 30 carbs in it. Okay, that's like me bringing way, like triple the amount I ever thought I would use. I ate Cliff Bar, I ate um, dried fruit, I ate uh, chocolate covered raisins. I like, I ate like all the trail mix, you know, like everything. And then we see a 55 double arrow down. And it, I'm starting, my hands are shaking. My legs are starting to feel shaky. I know that I'm definitely symptomatic at this point. So my husband thinks, well, why don't we do the BIS quiz me? I've never done it before. We actually didn't even know how it worked exactly. We knew how to administer it, but we didn't know how many like points it would raise your blood sugar or anything like that. So it was kind of like, okay, how many points does this raise your blood sugar? So he's like reading the back of it, you know, trying to see, and it says it only raises it like 20 points, um, which we were like, wait, Okay, so I don't know. I can't, I haven't reread it, so I don't know if that's incorrect. Don't quote me on that. You definitely need to look for yourself if you're listening to this. Um, but we said, okay, well, that's not going to like shoot me to the sky or anything. That's just going to be 20 points. And at this point, honestly, even if I go to like 400, 
uh, that's better than being 55 double arrow down. I can just now give insulin to kind of correct that. So we gave it and I will tell you, it was a shocking experience. I thought it would be more like a nasal kind of like inhaler or something. It is like a thick powder that gives you kind of a experience like what I can relate it to is like a brain freeze, but not quite a brain freeze, but like that sensation where all your nerves in your brain kind of go crazy. And it almost made me feel like unsturdy. Like it was just so shocking. It was like unsturdiness. And then it did actually bring me up to about 300. So I was able to go up, but go up and the rest of the hike, I was okay. I just, um, I didn't dose anything else. And by the time I got back, I was low again. So yeah. So what, it was a what crazy a day. And I don't carry Vexemia around enough, right? Like I bring it on trips. Well, I, I also, maybe if I went on like a hike like that, maybe that that's like when I bring it, maybe that's what I learned from this. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, because I, I didn't know anything about like what it's like using it, what it feels like. These are good things to know, um, just to be aware of when you're going to use it. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry you had to go through that, but I'm glad. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And they say that you should be lying on your side after too, like in case, cause like you could throw up, they say like, not everyone gets nauseous, but it could happen. Mm. It's, they say. On that note, let's let's <laughs> let's real quick like you 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 mentioned I mentioned this in the introduction um, before this played, but tell us a little bit about van life. Obviously, you're outdoors a lot. Like, what is that? A, what has that been like? How long have you been doing it? And kind of like tell us a little bit about how like the diabetes is kind of while doing that. Yeah, I've been doing van life now for two and a half years. It kind of I never was outdoorsy. I never was a camper. I did Girl Scouts, didn't like it. You know, don't like dirt. I'm definitely anal a little bit. I have OCD tendencies with like cleanliness and organization. And that's mostly due to like my health, just having to have like everything in order and stuff. I'm very like picky about things like that. And um, during quarantine, we had a crazy wildfire. And that kind of pushed us into this van life. I was too afraid to stay with friends or stay at a hotel. Um, And one of my friends said, well, why don't you rent this van? It has a bed, pack everything you need. You won't have to go to a store. You won't have to see people. You can just be like outdoors in the wilderness and you can be away from the fire. And it was kind of like desperation that my husband and I were like, okay, let's do it. Um, and so we rented a van and we ended up having to stay out for like three weeks because of the fires, because it was ashing over our house. Um, and again, I was like too afraid to go to any family members to stay with them. Um, and so, uh, after the three weeks we came back home and we were kind of doing our like daily walk together. And I was like, you know, I'm loving where we're living now. I'm loving this place that we're in. It's awesome. We have great neighbors. We considered like buying this place and staying here, but I don't feel like I have like a, like fulfillment in my life or purpose because I'm finally healthy. This is the first time in my life where I have flexibility to be away from the hospital. And I'm kind of just sitting here and I'm not fulfilled by that. 
I'm not doing anything that's like making me feel like, you know, my days are purposeful. And so I said, why don't we do van life? And one thing I've learned from this experience is never suggest anything to my husband because he's going to do it right away. So a month later, <laughs> he bought a van and we moved into it. And it's been like the most incredible experience as far as like seeing, you know, North America and traveling and having, um, being surrounded by new people and meeting new people. And, you know, how it impacted my diabetes was really pushing me into getting an insulin pump and pushing me into being responsible on the aspect of like, I, when I used to go low, I used to just kind of stuff my face with food, which is like a lot of people do because we have, we don't feel control. We just kind of put as much sugar into our bodies as we can. And it's like, you just have that feeling of needing to. Um, and now I've learned to go back to like the basics, diabetes 101 and use glucose tabs. I actually have them right here. <laughs> use them and count them out and know like four tabs. Yeah, four tabs is 15 grams and like know my body needs X amount of grams for X amount of um, a low. So I'm now like seeing I'm this low. I gave this much insulin. I have this much on board. This is how much my carb count was, how much, you know, how many carbs do I need to intake and doing it like precisely and taking in just what I need and um, carrying glucose tabs with me more, like doing things like that. Like I always had, you know, like a Gatorade with me or a snack with me, but I never quite had, you know, the appropriate things, all of the necessities that I should have had. So it's definitely taught me responsibility and um, preciseness in my care. Kayla, this is this is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, it was super insightful uh, and inspiring, and I'm so excited for people to hear it. Before we go, can you please let people know how they can find you? Yes, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook by Fight to Breathe. It's F I G H T, the number two. B R E A T H E, fight to breathe, or go to fighttobreathe.org. You can read everything about cystic fibrosis, organ transplant. You can become an organ donor there. You can learn about diabetes and just learn about the things I love in life. So go check it out. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. This was amazing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I've thrown Kayla's vlog and her social media accounts in today's show notes. New episodes release every Monday on YouTube and wherever you listen. Plus, I've got new videos dropping on YouTube every Friday. You gotta check out the video of me visiting Insulate headquarters, seeing the Omnipod factory. That was so awesome. So check that out with the link in the description. And until next time, I'm Justin and I'll take you later.